There's a pretty good chance that very few of you, if any, woke up this morning and had, and the first thought that came into your mind was your own dying. I doubt that that was the case. And perhaps you'd be surprised that as you enter into church today, that we're talking about a subject that most people would prefer to ignore. Yes, this subject will make some uncomfortable, even anxious. But discussing the ends of our lives is an extremely important one. Will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, may we have the courage to face challenging questions, respect for a wide diversion of opinions, and confidence that through reflection and prayer, today's message will be valuable and helpful. Amen. Well, this is the second, as McGray said, second in the series of sermons uh, entitled In Light of Eternity. Part of the reason this series exists, I think, is uh, probably some of my own prodding to McGray. Um, because talking about dying and death is something that one rarely hears from the pulpit. It's a subject that ministers generally really don't care a lot about addressing. And yet, uh, we are surrounded by death. Just look up. It's everywhere. But it's a subject that, as I will explain further, is something that many of us want, very much want to ignore. Well, there's obviously a story about this. McGray gave you part of it, and I'll shed a little bit more light on this. But in fact, um, what I have become is an expert in dying. I didn't set out to achieve this type of goal. I enjoyed my practice of medicine, caring for people and trying to prolong their lives and doing everything I can to improve the quality of their lives. But like any other situation, any other physician, um, my patients gradually declined and died. And I found that when I visited them in their homes, whenever, whenever possible, that I found this a very, a very special, a very intimate time, even spiritual in nature. And one of the things that got me started on this journey that's, that really began in 2005, now 11 years ago, was one Sunday at Hyde Park United Methodist Church, um, Reverend Harnish announced that uh, uh, today would, uh, we would have available for the congregation a booklet uh, created by the Endowment Committee entitled uh, A Gift from the Heart. Uh, and I remember leaving the congregation that day and picking up my booklet and looking through it and saying, wow, boy, they really did a favor for everyone here by putting together in a booklet all those things that we need to have at hand uh, in, at the end of life. I mean, where are the booklet provided that in a beautiful way. But as I read through it, I was disappointed in one thing. There was virtually nothing talking about the medical realities at end of life. For instance, imagine these questions. If I was severely ill, 
how would I want to be treated? If I was severely ill, who would speak for me? What sort of medical treatment would I want or not want? What is a DNR, palliative care, hospice, and many others? So my background is as a, as a practicing physician, as a cardiologist. So I obviously dealt with a lot of people with very advanced disease. But as I got to thinking about, well, what would I want in that booklet? It really started off this whole journey in a nutshell. And one of the first things I identified was not only does there have to be something about medicine, but, but there's another part of dying that's very important, and that's the, the spiritual side of dying. And I thought, well, if I'm going to try to talk to people about dying, uh, I need to know a little bit more about the spiritual side of dying. So I went undercover. I became a chaplain. At Tampa General, they have a program where they train primarily um, divinity students who need a hospital experience to get a chance to see what it's like to be in a hospital. So I took that course. So my badge, I turned it around and instead of saying MD, staff physician, it said chaplain. And I went to visit people as a chaplain, not as a doctor. I could see their medical realities. But I didn't want to talk about their medical realities. I wanted them to talk to me as a chaplain. What's on your mind? How are you feeling? That's a great deal. Simply put, the main lesson I took away from that is that I realized that patients never told their doctors what they tell their chaplains. I mean, it's a, it's a disconnect. Doctor, you're supposed to talk about your your body to your... Minister, you're supposed to talk about your soul. Uh, but wait a minute. The, these two are very intimately tied together. How do, we, how do we connect those? Well, I thought I had to, you know, being a, a professional student uh, and always wanting to go back to school, I'd always threatened that. I didn't know what I'd do. But given this that was developing, that's what led me to Duke Divinity School. And one of the reasons I got to Duke was because of a program within the Divinity School they called the Institute of Care at End of Life. So there was, a, there was a focus in the Divinity School on this aspect of our lives. Uh, and there were three physicians who were on the faculty. And that gave me some comfort since I knew I could speak their language at least. I didn't speak theological language. So I had some comfort in knowing that I'd have colleagues that I could share this with. One of my professors, uh, who's actually been here to Hyde Park a number of years ago, wrote this statement in the introduction to his book called Living Well and Dying Faithfully, if I can see that quote. Dying is a spiritual process with medical implications. Now, this is a profound statement because it absolutely turns on its head the way most people think and most doctors think about dying. Well, it's a medical event. Uh, well, yes, there are medical aspects to dying and I've become somewhat of an expert on that as I work with hospice. But in fact, what's really important uh, 
in this particular time in our life are those spiritual things that are going on, going on between the patient and his family, between and other family. It's very much a spiritual process. Now, most doctors, as I say, don't, don't address these issues, but there are two prominent exceptions, two recent exceptions, and there are two books I'd like to recommend to you. The first is by Dr. Atul Gawande, a Harvard-trained surgeon, world-class training, but he was humble enough to admit that he realized he didn't know how to talk to his patients about dying. And he proceeded to work through this process in a beautiful book called entitled Being Mortal. Many of you may well have already read that. The other book that I'd like to draw your attention to, When Breath Becomes Air, was written by Dr. Kalanidi, uh, a, a neurosurgery resident at Stanford University. And Dr. Kalanidi uh, developed stage four lung cancer in the last year of his seven years training as a neurosurgeon. He died. But these books give powerful insights into dying and the care of the dying. I encourage you to look at those. So we don't want to focus on our own dying. That's one of the last things we want to think about. Actually, uh, I like the Woody Allen uh, philosophy on dying. He said, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> or as Jim Harnish used to say, no one gets out of this life alive. So it is something that there's some reason for us to pay attention to this. I would submit there's two reasons why Americans have so much trouble with dying. And those two words are denial and defeat. We are the great recipients of tremendous advances in technology and medicine. I mean, illnesses now, a hundred years ago, would have been an immediate death sentence. But because of things like mechanical ventilators, implantable defibrillators, antibiotics, just to name a few, we are the recipients of an additional 20, 30 years of life because of these advances in medicine. But there's a downside to that because there has developed a perception among the public that because of all of these tools that are available, that medicine, that the powers of medicine hold power over death. In fact, you'll hear ads uh, about talking about ba the battle of cancer, the battle against heart disease. And that battle has become a metaphor, which then promotes this, the use of this vast arsenal of drugs and devices that allow death to be delayed, often for months, years, even decades. And this only leads to us procrastinating further on facing the reality of death. The defeated part of that, um, I have to uh, 
uh, focus that primarily on my medical colleagues. And that is for, for many of my colleagues, um, when a patient dies, it's often looked at as a personal defeat, as if, as if we have lost, we have given in to the powers of death. But as a result of that, when, when things are getting worse, we tend to bring out more and more tools to use to only prolong the process. So that as a consequence, in this city and in this state, there are literally thousands of people who are in a situation that I call death-delaying as opposed to life-prolonging. One really does not want to be there. So this brings me back to the story in Luke. Luke, of course, was a physician. So I think there's some irony in, that, in, in bringing him into this discussion. You've all heard this parable read. A parable that perhaps is the most famous parable in the Bible. And I would submit that the idea of the Good Samaritan is really an icon, a generic symbol for what it means to be one's neighbor. But when I got to Duke Divinity School and they tried, tried to teach me how to read things better and closely and contemplatively, as I reread this uh, parable, I found something there that I'd never seen and totally changed my way of looking at what Luke had to say. There are two words in this parable that I would submit that most of you have never really thought about. And when I bring it to your attention, uh, you may wonder why perhaps you never looked at it quite that way. So I want to redirect you to the last sentence in verse 30 of the parable. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead half dead I've quizzed a lot of pastors about this sentence and asked them how many times they had ever even noticed let alone preached on this on these two words um, not very often <laughs> um, so the good Samaritan he finds this man let us say in the ditch to connect to my sermon title, found him in the ditch at the side of the road. He attended to him, he bandaged his wounds, he cleansed his injuries with oil and wine, loaded him on his own donkey and took him to the inn for care. So in essence, this good Samaritan is a first century example of excellent palliative care. Not only did he care for him, but he even gave the innkeeper a certain amount of money and told when he came back he'd pay the rest of the bill. When's the last time you heard of anyone paying a medical bill for someone else? Been a long time. So here's the question. What plan do you have in case you're half dead? Who will be there to speak for you, let us say a good Samaritan, when 
you can no longer express your autonomous wishes for how you want to be cared for. Fortunately, we in America have three women, the women in the ditch, to thank for laws that make it much easier for our good Samaritans to speak for us if we were half dead. I've taken a little liberty with the facts. Since the three were not literally in the ditch, with one exception, Nancy Crusan was in the ditch. But as I conceive of the man going on the road to Jericho, I can imagine these women being in the same predicament. You'll probably recognize these names. Karen Ann Quinlan, Nancy Crusan, and Terry Schiavo. Each have played major roles in how Americans have greater control over the ends of their lives. All three of these women ended up in a persistent vegetative state. Karen's parents in the 1970s said, we want this ventilator removed. This is inconsistent with any of her wishes or the way she'd want to live. Took a lot of legal wrangling, uh, and the Supreme Court got involved and so forth. But because of the equal protection clause of the Constitution uh, and rights to privacy, the ventilator was removed um, and, the, and the patient died. Similarly, Nancy Crusan had a feeding tube. Same sort of scenario. Uh, again, to the Supreme Court to uh, finally uh, allow this uh, process to occur based on her wishes. And, of course, Terry Schiavo, any of us that have lived in this area, in Florida, or in the United States for that matter, uh, remember the uh, tremendous ordeal surrounding uh, the desire on the part of her husband to remove her feeding tube. But as a result of all this almost circus-like uh, phenomenon that occurred with Terry Schiavo, as a result of that, the rate of completion of advanced directives by people in the United States went to its highest level ever. Three women left half dead on the road to Jericho. Three women whose tragic ways of dying provide each of us with the promise of control over our own dying. Three women who each had a good Samaritan to speak for them, advocate for them, and whose legacy empowers us to make decisions so that none of us or our loved ones have to grapple, grapple with being half dead. All states in the United States now have recognized advanced directives as legally and binding uh, directives for the care at end of life. Advanced directives are not perfect. Um, it's impossible to imagine every possible scenario of what can happen in a medical circumstance. But by starting the process, by having a conversation between husband and wife and families and children and parents, one can begin to address this really agonizing set of decisions that often follows. In the um, endowment booklet that will be available to you as you leave here today, 
um, there uh, is a list of, of, of um, places you can go to uh, receive information about an advanced directive. But the process begins with a conversation. So I would say to the seniors here, I don't mean high school seniors, I mean us seniors, you know, us seniors. Um, I urge you to, if you have not, to create an advanced directive and select a surrogate who can speak for you in the event you no longer can. Seniors, you need to make this very clear to your children so that when I have to deal with you at the end of your life, that I don't have to have arguments with your children about what you wanted because it's clearly stated here in your advanced directive. And children, you know, talk to your parents. In my class at USF, I asked my class how many of them have advanced directives. I don't, I don't expect any of them to raise their hand, and they don't. But they're 20 years old. Who would have an advanced directive when they're 20? Except I point out to them that all three of these women were in their 20s when they died. So it's a conversation that Luke wants us to have. Little would he imagine in the 21st century of how those words about in the parable that the Good Samaritan would resonate with us in our modern technological age. No one wants to be half dead. The reality can't be escaped, but the process can be managed with thought, planning, and prayer. We can be good Samaritans to one another. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.